Welcome to The C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about emerging professionals. I'm Jenny Mathiason, a Conservative based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Ramsey, a Conservative based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, a Conservative based in Cambridgeshire. All right, do we have any news, ladies? Uh, I've got one piece of news, which is that IIC have announced the date for their next Student and Emerging Conservator Conference, uh, which will be held in Bern in Switzerland on the 12th and 13th of October. And the uh, theme for this conference this time is Conservation with Head, Hands and Heart. And the uh, sessions that they've got planned um, sort of follow the idea of using head, hands and heart as a conservator. So um, I'm guessing head is being represented by scientific research and conservation science and its applications. Hands, uh, there's going to be a session about conservation and restoration in practice and heart. And um, this is the really interesting one. I think there's going to be a whole session about passion and communication in conservation. Oh, yeah. That sounds fantastic. So um, at the moment, it's just been announced as a save the date as I said, 12th and 13th of October, um, but I guess they'll be putting up a call for papers pretty soon. And I think it's really um, great that they're carrying on with this. The first one was held in London in 2011, and they've since had ones in Copenhagen and Warsaw. So it looks like it's something that they're going to carry on doing every couple of years uh, to give a voice to uh, student and emerging conservators, and also as a forum to network and to discuss some of the issues that are kind of specific to emerging professionals that sounds amazing save the day people and uh start saving for going to switzerland <laughs> yeah unless yeah. you're in switzerland already yes <laughs> uh more details on the iic website Bye-bye. amazing thanks very much christina anyone else my bit of news is um one of those nightmare new species news things and it's the new species of silverfish has been found in the museum of london yeah crap. um and is thought to be spreading around europe and this is a problem because it can survive in ambient rh everyone so it's no there's no magic keep it at the proper rh and you'll all be fine it's they they survive at 40 to 65 rh oh so the sweet spot <gasps> great yes yes giant mutant silverfish. giant mutant silverfish coming to attack our collections <laughs> and there's some lovely close-in gruesome images of silverfish so if you hate silverfish maybe cover that page um, or use it as a dartboard <laughs> or use it as a dartboard yes oh lovely <laughs> um museum association has declared the first museum's day uh, in the uk ever and it will now be on may 15th presumably every year so it's an advocacy day for museums and i just thought that was kind of cool that we we finally have a museum's day that's really nice it's nice i hope people do something nice for it cake yeah cake clearly (laughs) cake in the shape of whatever museum you work in that would be amazing can i make that happen that could be really difficult for quite a lot of people yeah it really could be (laughs) my site's quite sprawling does this mean i get multiple cake oh maybe or maybe you do just one store. Oh, that's boring. Isn't it? <laughs> anyway, so yeah, Museum's Day is on May 15th. Yay! Uh, another piece of news is that uh, the Metropolitan Museum has put out a call for uh, audit testing of any materials that conservators and museums use all the time. Like 
basically gives them a list of things that you use regularly for display and storage and they will audit test it because they need to know what people are actually using now. And here's an additional piece of news. A brilliant piece of news from Australia is that the Australian Institute for the Conservation of Cultural Materials now has an emerging conservative group. Well done, guys, and good luck. Another great piece of news is that we are now on Patreon, which means that you, our listeners, can become our patrons and help support us in making more episodes and more content for you to listen to. Basically, you can get access to loads of cool stuff that nobody else will get to listen to uh, if you come and support us. We've put the link in the description and uh, I hope you'll join us. Thanks very much. Right, so today we're talking about emerging professionals, and uh, with us today is Marie Jordan, an American collections care professional. Hello, Marie. Hi. Excellent. Oh, you're our first guest host. Are you excited? I'm excited. Oh my god, I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, you you're special. Yay. Yeah, quite. No, this is really fantastic. Thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm really, Thank really you for excited. Accepting. <laughs> And of course, I now have to, have to say the mandatory thing of we would love to have more guest hosts, by the way. So if anyone's interested, let us know, because we love talking to people. In case you didn't know, get in touch. Anyway, so obviously today's uh, topic is something close to our hearts. It's emerging professionals and what it's like starting out in the business, because we're all in that kind of category, aren't we? It's the trials and tribulations, general yeah. struggles. Yeah. Uh, trick and like we've got a good mix because you're in america marie uh obviously we're based in the uk although i'm one of those pesky foreigners so for example brexit makes me a bit nervous because i'm not a british yeah. citizen oh life's amazing uh it's a great time to be alive um but anyway <laughs> yeah. now uh, i was going to start with actually defining what an emerging conservator is and i think the the definition I see most often is basically from studenthood to the and up to and including the first five years after graduating. That tends to be what we say is, is an emerging conservator. Although I have recently seen, I think it may have been in a survey or a research paper or something, where they actually went as far as saying the first 10 years, because the job market is now so different from the previous generation of conservators and that's just a terrifying thought so the the definition certainly varies uh but i think probably the first five years i'm trying to be optimistic the first five years could possibly be emerging conservator although i don't know what we call ourselves after that point and and i, I say that because i'm about to move into that in that i graduated in 2012 so that means that technically from september i i passed some sort of threshold in terms of my post-graduation uh, life, and what, what do I? What am I then? Early career is yeah, a good one. I, I think any definition. Yeah, I think any any time before your first permanent position in conservation, Ooh. because that that could be a really long time. It it could be a really long time, and that's fair enough if you go on the rolling contract thing, which many of us do. But it's, it, I suppose it's the, um, as soon as you hit permanency, I mean, this is, it's typical for someone who is not a permanent conservator to say this, because obviously the grass is always greener, etc. And there are all sorts of problems that come along hand with being permanent in an institution, etc, etc, etc. But in terms of um, 
general career progression and people's priorities in their personal, their professional development and all of this, it, I, I'm pretty sure it will change as soon as I get my first permanent position. And maybe Jenny, that's from your five year point you're you're permanent in your that that is that is true i I'm, so maybe there's a change there i'm, I'm fortunate that as of uh <clears throat> last year last june i have a permanent job or what's what's called permanent <laughs> permanent <laughs> until there's a reshuffle a funding cut or they do something horrible redundancy though it'd be fine retrain it'd be fine <laughs> <laughs> so uh with some caveats in place i have a permanent job um which is lovely so yeah i suppose uh, I suppose next stage is early career then. I suppose I, I could be early career rather than emerging, technically. But I'm going to I'm gonna share all of my horror stories with you. Um, and don't know if I've got time for all of them. No, you're quite right. Some, some, of, them, <laughs> some of the horror stories. Are we going to do uh, Worst Rejection as well? Because I think that's a good one. Yes. Oh, See, a really Mary, good one. Jenny and I have oh, a bit of a, a, bit of a competition. Awesome. We have a bit of a competition of who's had the worst rejection. I think I'm winning. I don't know. Am do I winning? So? Oh, I don't know. Oh, well, What's well, yours? Re- mm. When I learned that I couldn't be hired in the UK, uh, there was crying. Oh, because on Lisa, both right? sides of the phone. So it that's that's not. visa complications, I'm guessing. Um, yeah, basically, I hadn't under because um, the UK Home Office, the literature they put out is just like not a resource. Um, I it hadn't understand not. the laws around uh, who could hire me. So I went for all these jobs and I was like, oh, they just have to be able to prove that I was the best qualified. This will be fine. Like somebody writes, somebody signs a form. It'll be great. Um interviewed for a job and about a week later got a phone call and they said we would love to hire you but hr is telling us we have to offer the job to a uk or eu citizen who meets the minimum requirements first oh my minimum and wow yeah that's a kick like in there. so basically i and like if it was like pretend it's me and some hypothetical person going for a position we both obviously meet the minimum requirements because we make um, we're interviewed. Even if I'm the better candidate, I can't be offered the job first. Oh, that's yeah. That just makes you tired. And, and oh. that's when we like collectively learned this. And like, I think I started crying on the phone, and I'm pretty sure she started crying on oh, the phone. God. So that was like my introduction to immigration law, and okay, I think you win. Yeah, uh, just straight up, shit. I think you win. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'll I'll share mine. My worst projection was I'd just done the interview, and they said, "Oh, we'll let you know probably by the end of the day." Now, as you might know, emails are timestamped. I had not <gasps> left the building. By the time the rejection email went out, and that that's oh, a, that's oh. a very quick execution right there. And the, I mean, it really, God. I mean, it would have been. I think I would have been less annoyed by it if um, if I'd done a terrible interview. But it was easily one of my best ones. <laughs> and I was oh. like, wow, how do you win? How do you recover after that? Just hadn't even left the building. So yeah, Ouch. that's that's oh, some good God. stuff. That's some good stuff. I'm thinking probably it was an internal candidate that they'd already had their heart set on. And that's fine, but <laughs> that's still harsh. Oh, no. 
I have opinions about that, but yeah, they probably had someone and they were doing this to like fulfill their legal obligations, but I have strong opinions about that. Yeah. <laughs> Chloe? <laughs> Mine was, um, the, the fact that I was rejected for the job is, job is not at all in any way a sore point because I did the worst interview I've ever done in my entire life and I'm shit at interviews. So this is, this was, a, this, I mean, I wasn't surprised in any way at all, but my rejection came through the job being re-advertised the following day. Oh. So at least, I mean, actually, I think that's worse. That's worse. At least it was, at least it was a comfort that no one met the requirements. But at that point, I did think to myself, you should, at least you, you could have just not been shit. And then like, that's all they wanted <laughs> at this stage. Um, so it was, yeah. And I, I did hear afterwards that the, there was several, um, sort of, um, angry words with, the HR department about that because it was a it was an administration mistake which is all fair enough but you know at the time it was just like oh just an email and then the email that I received after I'd called saying um I'm a bit um what was um you have not been selected because there was a um a more suitable candidate I was like I know that's a lie that's just a lie that was a standard email (laughs) that was a mistake yeah so that was a other form email for my rejection because this is just insulting us both. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just tell me. Although, just tell although, me. It's fine. I, I mean, yeah, so yeah. swift execution, really horrible. Although also never being told, like never hearing back. That's also kind of ah, uh, guys. <laughs> That's all oh, I mean that happened to me, thankfully. Really, really bad. Mm. I had a job I interviewed for and like I think my blood pressure was just raised for about a month afterwards because afterwards she was like, oh, yeah, well, we will absolutely let you know. I hate it when people don't let people know nothing. No yeah. response to an email. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so like, rubbish. A, a lot of HR departments are really overworked. But God, I consider the candidates they're really stressed out. <laughs> yeah. um, a criminal to do it to somebody who's made the journey and gone through the stress and probably totally redone their portfolio and like, mm-hmm. you know, ironed the shirt and everything uh, to then not tell them after an interview but to be honest it even gets to me it get it bothers me when people don't email you back after uh, you send in an application because you know fair yeah. en- fair enough not being selected these jobs are wildly over applied to subscribe to. Applied for, yeah. yeah it's absolutely fine but then to sort of just wait and wait and wait and go all right well it's been three weeks now probably probably not but maybe and you know it's you get all these emails put all the ones you don't want onto a list and send them a sorry email. How hard is it? Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just, you know, the, I, the, I, it's a courtesy. People can't do that. Did once get an email from a place like four months after I'd applied Aww. and they were just like, you could hear the exhaustion coming through. Cause they were like, <laughs> we found this took longer than we expected. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was like the opening line. <laughs> You're just like, I can't even be angry because you sound so tired. <laughs> oh, so uh, listeners, clearly, if you have worse horror stories than we than we do, then please let us know. Uh, I'm yeah. sure we will uh, uh, weep with we, Weep with you, yeah. yeah. We will keep you totally anom- anonymous, don't worry. Yes. <laughs> Is this a nice transition to move into uh, unemployment and the problems therein, or oh. do we have other things coming up? Well, I was thinking maybe we could run through some of the uh, comments that listeners and uh, basically emerging professionals have 
emailed us, messaged us with, tweeted at us. Uh, we won't mention any names. But basically, we put out a call saying, emerging professionals, what are your troubles? Tell us and we will talk about them. And this is the marvellous list that has been compiled. Thank you, everyone who came forward. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are amazing and brave. Thank you for sharing. Um, so we asked questions like, furthest you've travelled for an interview? Uh, an American responder with 1,200 miles. That is pretty far to travel for an interview. Um Although apparently not uncommon because that person was not the only one to tell me that approximate number of miles, which is concerning. Another person said uh, five hours there and five hours back. That was in the UK on public trains. Oh, I've done that driving yeah, on a number of oh, occasions. Well, yeah. I think my maximum yeah. is four. I think four and a bit probably on, on trains. But then, you know, you've got changes and all that stuff. That doesn't really help you, especially if you've yeah. got a morning I mean, slot interview when you had to. And how much does that cost? Five yeah. hours on the train. At least driving, you've you've already had the cost of the car yeah. and you've it's just the fuel. Yeah. But on our trains, Jesus, that oh, must yeah. have been in the hundreds. Someone said uh, it's very helpful if employers offer to Skype with you. And uh, I agree. That is lovely. I've actually tried to make that happen when there have been such immense distances or they've given me a time slot no train can get me there on time um and usually the answer has been oh we don't do that that's not our procedure so uh, i've had very negative responses when i've asked for people to be a bit flexible uh, but i'm glad that other people are having positive experiences with skype interviews because i'm yeah. pretty convinced that they can do the exact same thing as you sitting in a sitting in a room you know with mm. the, the people um, I get that if there's some sort of practical element involved, that might be more difficult to assess you on. But um, yeah, depending on the type of interview I, that you're doing. Yeah, like I I think it's a lot more common in the US, obviously, because we're quite a bit more spread out. Mm. But every interview I've had since November 2016 has been on Skype or over the phone. Hey, um, nice. Which is two, but like uh, still, two that's that's two more than me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just like that sounds less impressive when I actually tell you the number. Um, and the one I did in person was in New York, which was it's an hour and a half away from me on the train, so that is that's, like that's doable. Yeah, that's that's certainly convenient. Um, it does help a lot being located in the Northeast, and I'm along what's called the I-95 corridor which is just a huge interstate highway that runs from like Maine down to Florida Whoa. Um, and DC, Philadelphia, Baltimore and New York city are all on it. So, yeah. So it really massively depends on where you're located then, whether you've actually yes. got sort of convenient transport. Yes. I'm very unusual in that I can even consider train as transport. Um, yeah, I but I think that's again, on. like why a lot of Americans, are starting to do more Skype and phone mm. interviews just because like if I was in Nevada, like, no, I can't pay, you know, yeah. $400 to fly somewhere. Yeah. So some, someone, someone did come back and say, um, short notice travel with no financial support is a problem. They paid, uh, $600 for uh, a flight just to hop up, hop up state to, uh, get to go to an interview and they always didn't get it great <laughs> that's that's really awesome guys yeah that's not uncommon um here in the uk if you're on job seekers allowance and you get an interview with enough notice you can actually go to the job center and say i need to get to an interview 
could you give me uh i think it's called a travel check or something similar it was back in the day anyway um all of a couple of years ago um which is uh, like a nice little pink slip which you take to the train station and they exchange for actual tickets so you can't go anywhere else but your interview which is the whole point of it but they basically absorb that cost for you but it only works if it's a location where you can actually get by train uh, for example so that's all national trust properties off off uh you know the possibility list for anyone who doesn't drive um it's also only helpful if you have enough notice to get an appointment with whoever your supervisor is and actually get the travel slip otherwise you're paying for it yourself and never seeing that money again because most places do not offer travel reimbursement some very nice people do and those are the people that you love uh, even if you don't get the job, but <laughs> most places don't. Most places just think, yeah, if you're interested and keen, you should definitely pay to get here. Places don't have the capacity either, especially if no, it's a short it's term contract. They just yeah. they need it's, someone it's for true. three I'm, months, four months. It's true. I'm, I'm being really harsh now. It's it's <laughs> yeah. it's true. The but financial think, restrictions are enormous. Yeah, I mean, if you've got limited money, I think you should be willing to do a phone or Skype interview. At least as a first interview. I would agree with that. Um, Yeah, like that's, you need to give somewhere. Yeah, so uh, that's something that's been flagged up. And also, obviously, sometimes you do need accommodation because you might have have a Mm -hmm. time slot in the day where you can't get, get back that day or similar or it's so early that you need to go somewhere the night before and stay somewhere. So I've started a thing where I will not travel long distances before an interview because of the stress involved in will I be stuck in traffic yeah. or will my train be it just is enormously com- stressful yeah, exactly so I've in the past yeah. in recent past you know just in the summer I would um get in the car and drive for five hours and then do the interview um and I I think it would be you know I don't think it necessarily affected my interview performance because I'm sure to interviews but now I've just you know I deeply rely on friends, sofas, just, you know, come, can you look after me, yeah. please, for 12 hours? And I've yeah. got this interview and that's just the far more relaxing, you know, on the way back, it's fine. I don't mind. You can, you can stop as many times as you need to, but if you've got the pressure and the inevitable traffic jams, it will. Oh, quite. We also ask yeah. people what the shortest contract they've applied for is. Now, this uh, has, this has varied. Three months, uh, two months abroad, unpaid but supported with a grant, and uh, six weeks. Six um, weeks. That, to be honest, my, my first job was six weeks. Uh, it was, but I didn't have to move for that, so that is kind of crucial. Um, but yeah, my first job was six weeks, I've, and my second job was two months initially, and I moved across the country to that one. So, uh, oh my god. I've accepted, well, see, contract is a difficult one because I've done quite a lot of um, people know know me and they need the work done and they have a temporary employment payment type situation. Um, So I've done it for 10 days before (laughs) and I quit a job in Ikea to do that. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Because I just, I thought, you know, this was after, as Jenny said, you know, two months turns into nine months and I faithfully went on to 10 days to hope you know in the hope that it would keep me on the radar and it's that kind of 
you know, it's that kind of difficult situation where you literally don't want to turn down anything. Yeah. Um, you don't want to say no to anything, no matter the, the, the difficulties of that, because you think, well, it could turn into something. It would be good on my yep. CV. Um, and then you've got yourself in the situation where you, you know, you're relying on friends and family. And thankfully in that situation, I could live with my sister. Um, but you know, when you've got your family on the family, as in my other half on the other side of the country, then you've got the relationship pressures and all mm. of those things, you know, <clears throat> it's not something you can do if you have children, for example, it's not something yeah. you can do if you've, unless you've, you know, you, you're on that understanding with your partner or yeah, if you're geographically anchored in a place, then that's not an option. And that would be difficult for anyone, I think. Um, I'll pop in that yeah. um, I'm, I think I'm unique from you guys that I don't have a partner. Like, I have several plants that rely on me, and that's literally <laughs> it. I'm very, very lucky that my parents <laughs> and are a cat. <laughs> oh, no, the cat is my housemate. Oh, oh that's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I'm not actually responsible for the cat. And I have thought about, um, I've looked at, I think, a, I think it was like a six or eight month job in Seattle, which is 3000 miles from where I live now, and kind of done the well, if I'm moving to another large metro area, I can always temp or um, right now I model for artists and art classes. I'm like, well, Seattle has a lot of art schools. So if this runs out, you know, at least I'll still be in a metro area. But I also I recognize that I'm immensely privileged that I don't have to worry about family stuff. And I can just pick up and move across country for a six month contract and then like hope for the best. And I think that's something that like people really don't understand that I'm in a massive minority to be able to do that. It's I I agree and it's not necessarily just that you're in um a minority that you are currently in the situation it's also that a lot of us put off postpone being in more settled situations you know yes. and this isn't even just considering having kids because of course then you've got maternity issues but because most of us are women as we've covered before yes. in the podcast um <laughs> Yay, that, that you you know, one of my big bugbears about not being practical, not being permanent, is that I can't get a cat. You know, I've, I can cart my boyfriend <laughs> yeah. around the country, and essentially, as long as he doesn't grumble too loudly. But I can't get a cat because it'd be cruel. And I, you know, there's so many we put we postpone adulthood essentially mm-hmm. in order yeah. to live to in order to be emerging professionals. Yeah, I because mean, it, the amount there's of, so many points to stumble on. The 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 amount of flack I sometimes get from um um older relatives for example like why have you bought a house um i'm not sure how portable you think that house is going to be but yeah, i like, move a lot i'm not buying a house <laughs> yeah like i can't afford to buy a house to begin with no no like um, aside from that yeah, but they, they don't they don't understand that bit to begin with like what do you mean you don't earn enough money okay let's okay, just ignore that the magical house fairy shows up and gives me like three hundred thousand dollars so i can pay cash <laughs> for a house i cannot even imagine being that settled like yes. i'd be terrified to tie myself to an area that securely yeah, I mean, th- that bit is amazing because there, there is actually a, a slight level of fear involved, at least for me, where it's like, yeah, but if, if I, if I really commit to the area, then I, I probably say goodbye to my career because what if that job goes away? Yeah. Then I, yeah. then I'm, I'm there and I can never go anywhere where a job is. Uh, yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. 
I actually have a, um, and I haven't told you that this yet, Jenny, though this would obviously be, you know, you'd be first on my list to tell. <laughs> I have an interview Ooh. next week. Oh, um, <laughs> I don't feel very good about it. Good luck, though. Uh, thanks. Um, and it's for a six-month job. And I will I will talk about it because, you know, this we're due to release this after the point where I would have accepted yes. the job. So it's it's one of those jobs that's the um, rubbish combination of really far away from where I am currently, very short term and really exciting. So the project oh. is fantastic and I want to do it, but it's, you know, I've already had two arguments with my partner and talkings to oh. from my parents because they say it's ridiculous to move across the country and leave the area that you love and you have friends and you have all of the blah 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 for six months what are you going to do I'm, you know I'd be unemployed by Christmas that kind of thing and I you know I totally see that but but <laughs> yeah this is the situation that pretty much all emerging yeah. conservation professionals yeah. are in where it's you are faced with and also family members don't necessarily understand where it's like yeah but if i take this job it might lead to something and they're like yeah. that's a pretty big gamble yeah <laughs> you're telling me <laughs> oh, i'm the one who has to pay the bills <laughs> yeah like my other gamble is not being employed and having a longer gap on my resume so <laughs> yeah then that's yeah gaps on resumes is a big thing um yeah i don't i would be interested to know from employers how much of a difference that makes to the perception of a candidate because especially in this situation there are going to be gaps and if you've got to fill in you know recently i've done uh, two applications where in each one i had to fill in account for every all of the time for the last that. three years that's my least favorite bit oh, including you know any other employment or unemployment or unemployment and it just feels really shit to have to write down four months unemployed five months unemployed you know i wasn't just sitting yeah. on my ass i was applying to jobs constantly you know how how can you make that sound more proactive because it's as proactive as it can be yeah. You know, what can you do? You can say, I'm, sorry. Oh, no. What I've done is um, I have a lot of volunteer gigs and I just put that on my resume. Nobody needs to know that the fact that I'm volunteer coordinator for Philadelphia Ship Preservation Guild is unpaid. Although now everyone knows that. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think there's, I think it, volunteering is another issue that we can be talking about, but I I wouldn't say that a volunteer position is necessarily or should necessarily be considered less worthy than a paid position. But that is another thing that'd be really interesting to know how that's perceived. Yeah, I would be very curious because like anyone who sort of called, like who looked into it, it's on the website that it's an entirely volunteer run organization. Um, so like 12 seconds of Googling, but it's also like, I won't put, like that gig as a barista on my resume because it just takes up space and nobody mm -hmm. cares. Yeah, so same with like me and I kind of mm. <laughs> like I'm hoping to fill it in with volunteer gigs so I at least look like I'm improving myself and nobody needs to know what I did for to pay my rent in the intervening time. That makes it sound kind of dirty. Nobody <laughs> needs to know what I did. 
<laughs> slightly how I feel sometimes when I put all of my CD odd jobs on my on the like complete employment history, and I'm like, yes, I'm not proud of these things. <laughs> <laughs> this actually ties in when one with one of the um, lovely comments we had um, on the Facebook page um, as a private message, um, a conservator from Australia um, asked how we deal with or give ideas of how you deal with short and long stretches of unemployment. And I think it's, well, something to pay the bills. Cry. <laughs> Cry. <laughs> then dry your tears and go for temp work. I suppose in the UK, we there's temping agencies. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. There's job seekers yeah. allowance, but then that's really difficult because they want you to go for any job. So I tried doing it um, and they... The, the problem was that they were saying, well, you know, they, you know, they heard all my qualifications and they sort of had the idea of what was going on. And they said, you know, you're going to have to take any job. Yeah. And that's that's not the point we're trying. We're, we're trying to do our career. Yeah. Excuse me, do our careers. We're not just laying about, not wanting to work. It's just hard. And so that might not, not necessarily work for everyone. And depending on where in the world you are, you might not have the benefits. Yeah, exactly. Of, uh, having yeah, such that's a system. Okay. In the US, we just don't have unemployment unless you meet a very specific set of criteria. So that's that problem solved. Yeah. <laughs> no no yeah. money for you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The other problem that I found when I was working in IKEA is that IKEA is actually a really, really lovely employer. They they give you loads of benefits and they they genuinely want to invest in you as an employee. And so when you walk up to them and say, hey, um, I'm afraid I'm going to leave because I've been offered another job. Oh, what's the other job? Mm, yeah, so it's two weeks conservation work on the <laughs> other side of the country. What do you mean you're leaving a permanent job in yeah. retail? We've, you've got a future here. You can blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry, but this is the way we, we work. I imagine work. a lot of yeah. uh, conservators face that, though, because we do have to take on other jobs often uh, yeah. just to support ourselves. So uh, just... To come back to the question, which was, uh, how do you deal with unemployment? So for me, I went on Job Seekers Allowance. I've had to done, do that twice. Uh, the first time, it was kind of lovely because I had a really supportive supervisor. And this was before they became really strict. So this was uh, 2013. Um, and they weren't as bad then. So I had a really supportive uh, supervisor who said, I'll just go for all the heritage jobs. Like, I don't really care that they're not conservation, but just churn out as many applications as you can and we'll put this on this spreadsheet and I won't make you do anything else, which was really nice other than like what's mandatory. Now, the second time around, it was not kind. It was uh, a harsh reality where people do actually just go, look, there's a job at Asta, take it. I don't care. Uh, don't think that you're going to get your dream job. That's not the reality we're in. This is a recession. Get your hmm together. Uh, and while I see that point, it's also a case of, yeah, well, I didn't spend five years at university to uh, stack shelves. That's not the rest of my life. <laughs> I don't really care what you're telling yeah. me. Um, I'm fighting tooth and nail to get to another conservation job. Um, but of course, oh, you have, you have to do it on their terms, which is a pain for collection care. Mm. So yeah, it's it's a difficult one. Uh, so what I did yeah. in addition to being on job seekers allowance was 
I volunteered where I could, anywhere I could basically walk to because I had no mm -hmm. money. And uh, I lived off my savings. My parents helped me with rent, which is well harsh yep. because they're pensioners uh, and not wealthy ones. And uh, in addition to that, I started up an Etsy business to get any kind of trickle of money in. And that is truly a trickle because there's only so much demand for handmade stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how, that's how that's how I coped. Either <laughs> <laughs> that's how I coped uh, personally. Anyway, yeah, I, yeah. I personally lived off my family. I relied on them to help me out, and I made dance costumes to sell. And I danced as a as a professional dancer, but that was in dribs and drabs. Um, and other than that, it was. It was slow going, really. I did volunteer as well. I think in terms of um, morale building, if you are unemployed for short or long term, I think volunteering is definitely an issue that we can talk about. But in terms of keeping you sane, I found it really helped. And it's something else yeah. to put on your CV. And because you're volunteering, you can essentially you can pick and choose for the most part what it is that you want to do and what it is that you want to gain. So I said, right, I want to do these bits of conservation for you. I want to, you know, reorganize this and I want some experience in accessioning or, you know, documenta documentation or, you know, docu um, database use slash management, yeah. like that kind of thing. So you mm -hmm. can, you can, if you, if you have the capacity to work unpaid, fill in, your CV, but again, it's unpaid. Yes. Yeah. I have a really similar story. Um, I worked as a barista for a few months and for various reasons that actually turned out to be like quite bad for my mental health. Um, so never doing that again. And then I took up figure modeling for, I work for a few private artists and art schools and that I actually absolutely love. Um, if you're listening to this and in the Philadelphia area and looking for a model, contact me um, <laughs> because it was just like, it is absolutely fulfilling, but it's not enough to live off of. And I'm going to be switching to temping this summer. Um, I'm also really lucky that my parents can help me out quite a bit, uh, which is really embarrassing at the age of 35, but a lot of it is savings, my parents and whatever money I can bring in from doing little bits of things while I pray to get some kind of job and volunteering while I do that. Um, I'm really lucky that the modeling gives me a very flexible schedule. So shout out to the American Swedish History Museum Ooh. for putting up with me for several months and really <laughs> like letting me do collections care for them because that's the first time collections care can appear on my CV. Um, instead of just conservation. So that's been really lovely. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I like it. I learned that I'm really bad at speaking Swedish. It's a really, really difficult language to learn. <laughs> it is really, uh, it is really difficult and it's uh, really harsh on anyone who speaks English because uh, some of it is just, you just have to learn what these prepositions are, etc. It's like, there's no rule. <laughs> you just have to learn, <laughs> which is just harsh. <laughs> yeah. I, I mastered tack and I know a few random Swedish words because they appeared over and over again on the objects I was accessioning. Oh, fun, um, aren't they? <laughs> um, so I, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation. It's uh, Bokchikri. It's basically a book printing press. Oh, yeah, yeah. Quite, yeah. yeah. 
because that because everything has like the name of the press and it's always like trickery. Or, oh yes, of course, I, yeah, yes, that's so. uh, printing. Uh, trickery is printing. Okay, that's yeah. it. It's like that, and um, I had a lot of almanacs, but that I think it's like a cognate, so that one was really easy. Yeah, yeah, almanac. Yeah, that's fairly obvious. Yeah. What that is, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it's like I know thank you and like three very random words. Oh, I love it. That's But everything there was really, really nice and it was fantastic and I got to do a lot with textiles, which I loved. Oh, so that was really oh fabulous. Love it. Oh, yeah. lovely. Good shout out. I like it. Um, also, other, other issues that people uh, wrote to us about were, so we've already talked about this a little bit, but uh, I asked about have you had to work away from your spouse? Because I have several friends now who do work away from their spouses, like still. And people came back with uh, 14 months away due to a visa. And another one said they spent a year apart from their um, husband because they had to take a job in a different area of the country and they could not move with them. Now, this really sucks. And it's surprisingly common. It happens more in America than it does here. Again, because of, you know, them, you know, the geo geographical locations yeah, are very far apart. <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, but certainly it will be an issue here as well. Now I'm very fortunate in that I have a partner who works from home and has his own business, which means that he doesn't mind particularly when I go, Oh, we're moving again. <laughs> <laughs> take everything pack it up <laughs> we're gonna go for a ride again <laughs> this is the the situation has changed with me that um I, the longest i've spent away from my partner was um nine months in the first instance and then um five months in the second and he was away for his work in between that but now his job has changed so he can work from home so i am and this is why i'm not majorly freaking out about the the job I'm interviewing for because I can just bring him with me um but otherwise it would be it would be a nightmare uh, I also asked for uh actually this is a question from you worst contract to travel ratio Minneapolis to upstate New York for a three-month contract which involved Ooh. living almost entirely off their savings that is pretty bad how how long is that that is uh Another one of those massive distances, like, uh, 1,200 yeah, like miles. Yeah, a couple thousand miles. Yeah. Like 1,500 miles, something like that. And upstate New York, there's not a lot there. Like, you need a car, and it's beautiful. Like, it's absolutely stunning countryside. Mm. But, like, it's not sort of lots of urban centers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've I've got a friend who lives up there, and yeah, that pretty much matches her description of it. Yeah. Do you have areas that um, you see a job advertised in them? So I'm working around to London. We see a job advertised in them, and if it's you know, it has to be a very specific set of you know pay and um, um, contract length for it actually to be physically possible to do it. So is there an equivalent um, in? the states where it's where you just have to essentially just say nah can't do that can't physically make it work financially make um, it work i should say yeah i mean san francisco is probably my first choice for that because the cost of living like really anywhere even within commuting distance at this point is just outrageous it is impossible even if you're sharing um new york city is famously quite expensive but if you are willing to live in like 
northern New Jersey and share a house. Um, or even like some of the outer boroughs, like if you can live in fairly interesting places, you're going to be sharing with two or three other people, but it's it's just about affordable at um, fairly cheap prices. But yeah, there's definitely places that fall into that London trap of this is physically impossible for me because like, unless I get three side jobs this just can't be done um it's a the only the big advantages are both california and new york have very very good employment cultures i want to say where there is a little bit more of a push to pay a rate that matches where you're going to be living like san francisco is just obscene like they really that it's bad there um, New York, I think, is a little bit better, but definitely, yeah. So I actually had to turn down a London job at one point, which I was gutted about because it was a lovely job. And uh, I'd actually run the numbers and the numbers said, <laughs> you're losing money if you're paying rent and paying for the commute. That's not including bills or food, oh, like just commuting in. And I lived only 45 minutes from like commuting distance, um, I, I I would have lost money actively every month despite being paid. <laughs> and That's I was like, I'm really sorry. I You'll have to offer it to someone else. I was borderline in the London situation. I was commuting. I was lucky enough to um, live with my parents and be fed by them. Um, and I was, you know, just the commute was pretty much all of the money that I had every month. Um, so I absolutely didn't get out of the overdraft that that season. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> um, but again, it's... And I think we we touched on this in an earlier um, earlier episode of the podcast of demographics that we are... We are mm-hmm. a really set example of a set of people that do have other resources or other, you know, if it's crafty or we're... Um, of the are you looking for white middle class women <laughs> yeah we're, we're all white middle class women who can rely on family yeah to to pay their way and to facilitate the ridiculous rock star career of the highly <laughs> yep. educated professional conservator yeah it's um, yeah it's but it, it amazes me that i guess it amazes me that a we're so resilient and b we're so incredibly accepting of these weird conditions that we live in in that Nobody kicks up a fuss about this. Yeah, that's just what it is. Really? Really? Is it okay though? Like we're not we're not even breaking even. Oh, yeah. Like we're actually losing money working working like that. How how is nobody, including the professional organizations, going, hang on a minute. It's gotta be doable. It's difficult for everyone. This is the problem that yeah. you've you for the conservatives you've got for the for people, you know, what even if you're not accepting conservation jobs, if it's collections care or you know, any some other uh, group of essentially the same kind of work. If it's short term and that's the problem and it's people have to travel, you're massively from an employer's point of view, you're massively reducing the pool of people that will accept work like that. And you're if you essentially if you've got a project needs to be done. You've only got two months funding for it. You need it to be done well and really quickly. You, you're going to spend a lot of time on training because how many of the highly experienced conservator bracket can just drop everything in order to work in a place for two months? It's going oh, to yeah, be quite. your yeah. entry-level job, which is fantastic experience for the entry-level conservators, but it's it's just difficult. Then they've got to, then they're on 
moving somewhere for two months and desperately hoping and possibly leaving behind partners and family and etc so it's rubbish for everyone i think it would help if the employers kind of recognize that sometimes because sometimes it's just a case of uh you yeah you kind of borderline meat on a slab in that like that it's like yeah we, we just need a body to fill this role yeah that's nice yeah but uh the amount of stress you're going through when you don't know if you're going to be able to meet next month's rent is enormous and soul crushing and uh, i once uh I once had my zero-hour contract reduced from being full-time to part-time uh, at a moment's notice, which those are the rules of the game, and that is yeah. horrible. But I really surprised my then-supervisor by bursting out in tears, <laughs> which really confused them. I was like, why, I why, like, why is that upsetting? And I'm like, because it means I don't eat. <laughs> Yeah, like that, like, that I'm, yeah. I'm living hand-to-mouth. Like, yeah, like the, it was difficult to convey because they... They were obviously a well-established conservation professional, owns their own house. You know, you know they've got their stuff sorted. Uh, so the leap to think that someone might genuinely starve if you, if they don't have the amount of hours they need, that, that was, that was almost too much. Those yeah. two realities do not coexist. Like they can't gel at that all. Was, that's the enraging part. And I do not want to hear word one about someone meebling about how, why are the arts and heritage considered elitist? Why do we only have these highly privileged people working in the arts and heritage sector? <laughs> because that's how it's set up. I do not want to hear you meebling about, we don't understand why this happened. <laughs> how can we possibly change it? <laughs> like, because only people who can A, have the money to become highly educated, and then B, B, like every one of us on this podcast, and I would imagine most of our listeners who work in the conservation and collections care field, we've all like relied on parents and partners and just anyone who will give us money to do anything pretty much. And that's just very much the reality. And that's an enormously privileged place to be. It is. And that is, you know, part and parcel of why we're not diverse yet. Also, but that's another compliance thing. We're all like, well, it's hard for everyone. So we're just going to keep going like this. And then yeah. everyone goes, well, why don't we have more minorities? Well, it's because we decided to accept status quo and decided we're never going to change. And then you're never going to change. <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of a circle that goes on and, and on and on. And then someone like throws out a grant and you have like your token minority you can trot out. And that doesn't solve the problem in any way either. No, quite. Uh, so yeah, it's, yes, it's a big problem. We're clearly not going to sort it here on the podcast today, but it's worth <laughs> talking about and it's yes. worth being angry about it and it's worth doing something about it. Now, um, that can take many forms, but, uh, <laughs> like, I mean, I think, loads so of angry I'm, letters. <laughs> no, I'm really big on, giving people solutions because I listen to lots of political podcasts these days. And I think the first, oh, I never would have thought that of you, Marie <laughs> <laughs> is write to your professional organization and say, this is an issue. Can you bring it up at the next meeting? Like, please just make this a point in the minutes because this is something we're concerned about. And we're soon not going to have heritage professionals because we've all switched to become computer programmers because that pays our rent. We're also not going to have heritage. 
<laughs> I mean, it's yeah, oh, yes. it's not it's not we can't just get new heritage because you didn't employ anyone to fix it yeah. when it was breaking. <laughs> And then you sold yes. it, so it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Now, it's selling of collections sounds like a whole episode on its own. No, I don't We've already that. talked Ooh. about it. <laughs> oh, but yeah, I mean, like, if you happen to be on the board of a museum, bring it up at your next board meeting. If you belong to a professional organization, contact people in that organization and say, why is this an issue you're not addressing? How do we set up grants for emerging professionals? Do we require that employers pay a certain amount how do we help them but i think just saying that like we can all moan to each other and we do but really bringing it to the attention of people who can even just begin to discuss this and may not be as aware of it as they think they are that's a really concrete first step everyone can take i agree i agree also and it brings to mind i mean the the last time I heard this discussion, um, high level discussion was at a conference in 2013. So I don't have the absolute up to date sort of line on this because it was four years ago now. But I remember it was the first time I'd heard the profession, I suppose, talking about volunteering and the use of volunteers in order to get more stuff done and to tackle the fact that the, all of the funding cuts um, and it was presented and the whole conference was, present, was presented in looking positively um, towards the problems that we're facing and, you know, making making do, as it were. And I found it very, very frustrating and depressing to hear the attitude of essentially people who are best placed, people in high up in their organizations who are best placed to make a fuss, not making a fuss and just saying well, look at all this volunteering that we can do. And that that I think that I puts us in a really awful situation because... I'm sorry? I think I was at the same thing because this sounds really familiar, including yes. my reaction to it. Yes. This is <laughs> and mine, probably. <laughs> I, think it's, I think we can all, all agree that there are huge useful... Um, huge, huge value. There's huge value and huge resource in volunteers and volunteering. But... The, I mean, essentially, people should be paid for their work. Surely that should yes. be the, the bottom line. You should pay people for their work, especially if they are highly qualified. We we shouldn't be sort of you know, happily skipping towards not paying people. We should, you know, if we have to take it on as as a, you know, emergency measure, but we should also at the same time be making a giant fuss to to, you know, as you say, the professional bodies, MPs, all of this. We do all need to actually have a good moan about it at people, you know, at the Who people can make in charge. A difference. And, you know, that's that, that's you are... that's advocacy, which is something Icon is apparently really into now. So uh, I, I think, uh, great, then go and tell people that we're worth more than this, because we are. Anyway, yes, other, other common problems that we had were being overqualified yet inexperienced. So th that's the standard thing in an interview situation where someone says, oh, I got a lot of degrees, we couldn't possibly. And at the same time, turning around and saying, but you don't have enough on the job experience, so we couldn't possibly give you the job. Um, which is one of those catch 22s, which is, of course, something I feel like we have probably all experienced in one shape or another. Uh, another thing was uh, commuting times. So, for example, someone's been commuting for four hours each day for a thankfully... Was that me? 
No, actually, uh, for a thankfully paid internship. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, four hours every day. Uh, that's quite a lot of time. Not really. Yeah, it's quite a lot of time wasted, I feel. I, I know that people do things when they commute. I, I know that. And I appreciate that there's a lot of knitting and audiobooks going on. <laughs> but I still feel like that is a giant, giant waste of everyone's time somehow. Whereas like, yeah, but you could be doing something fulfilling with that time <laughs> resting i mean yes. it's, it's, it's just exhausting yeah like you you don't get private time yeah said the introvert who needs to be alone for like six hours every day <laughs> well yeah quite <laughs> so i mean yeah uh, we, we're very very tolerant towards uh commuting enormous distances and just going that's fine um oh i, I think a job in brooklyn and like the woman i interviewed with was stunned that i was willing to move to brooklyn and I was like, well, it's a two-hour commute each way, and it's very, yeah. very expensive. That's the fastest route each way. And she was just like, oh, people have done it before. Yeah. Like, what? I, I, <laughs> I find it astonishing uh, speaking to American uh, friends who are conservators or museum professionals, where they are just totally okay with commuting, like, you know, three or four hours. And it's just like, I What? Are you crazy? Are you some sort of crazy person? I love you, but you're crazy. <laughs> I mean, we're amazingly resilient like that. So, you know, uh, well done, guys. But at the same time. Whoop, whoop. Uh, Stay strong, guys. We can do it. The job is just around the corner. But also, please or be kind other to corner, yourself. Or the corner after that one. Please be kind to yourself, though. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> um, obviously, uh, other things that came up were zero-hour contracts with no job security. Uh, been there, done that. I'm also on Reddit a lot. So um, r slash museum pros is the uh, museum professional area of Reddit. And uh, there are quite a lot of uh, sad stories sometimes where people go, okay, so I've, I've just, I've had to give up now because I'm I, like, I'm, I'm doing something else. I'm becoming an accountant mm. because I can't take this anymore. The fact that I don't know if in six months time I still have a job. Yeah. And that is no, I'm, totally I'm, I'm understandable. Sure. And it's terrifying. It is terrifying. And I completely get that there's only so much of that that you can take. Um, perhaps moving on to a more positive uh, note, people have asked us, what are useful skills to have beyond just conservation skills uh, to get hired? And that is a great question. I think... Management. Yes. Yes, definitely. If Managing you- other people. Sorry, I didn't even let you finish. (laughs) People skills, people skills. That's totally a real thing. Being good at interviews. Yeah. Well, besides that. Besides that, databases comes up every single time. IT skills, definitely. Like, I I think all around you need really good IT skills. Yeah. I think the more you can do, the more valuable you are to to some employers. I say that some employers, because obviously there are big institutions that just want they just want the organics conservator to do those things and they're only really interested in that kind of shape of person but then you will have other types of employers where they're like really grateful if you bring other skills to the team whereas like i can do social media coordination can you brilliant uh that's a good good brownie point right there people skills like we've already mentioned ipm yeah that's something that i think if you do project work or if your your first job and then your second job and then your third job has been, you know, the short term project work, you don't get the opportunity to to gain experience in the core duties type of no, of, that's, conser- that's problem, of conservation yeah. or collections yeah. care. So you've so and again, this is the kind of thing that might come up in the volunteering 
if you if you do find yourself unemployed and you do have the opportunity to volunteer the opportunity is so it's a gift um, <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> um you know those sorts of things the ones that we might not necessarily fancy doing all the time those are the ones that people really want because no one wants to go and pick yeah, up some sticky things covered in it's worth bugs. going for the for the slightly less glamorous uh, aspect of the job yeah. just because that's what people want it's bog standard they want it what else? Like, can you just do environmental monitoring? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's plenty for today. Thank you so much, Marie, for joining us on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Please come again. Definitely. Thank you so much for inviting me. We've only managed to touch on a few of the comments and a few of the things that we've done. Yeah, to be honest, that, there's that we've so had. much more that we'd like to say. But uh, frankly, this episode is probably a really long one. <laughs> But thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please send us your comments, your suggestions, your corrections, anything at all. We we love hearing from you. And this is a really important topic to all of us, as you may have noticed by the fact that we got quite fighty about it. Um, so, yeah, uh, please get in touch. And uh, now we're going to listen to uh, Christina interviewing Jonathan Ashley Smith, the, the man, the myth, the legend. While Jenny and Chloe were chatting with Marie, I went to interview Jonathan Ashley Smith, former head of conservation at the VNA and now a teacher and consultant in cultural heritage risk. We spoke about how conservation training has changed over the years, the importance of craft and hand skills, and why it pays to get on with your colleagues as an emerging conservator. Could you tell me a bit about your own career in conservation? Yeah, I did a degree in chemistry, then I did postgraduate and then I came to Cambridge doing two years of postdoctoral chemistry. At that time my dream was to become a lecturer in inorganic chemistry but there were no jobs in the whole world at that time. So I looked around and discovered the thing called conservation so I thought I'd try and get into conservation. I ended up getting a job at the V&A it was meant to be a scientific job, but they said, oh, well, the science stuff isn't ready. Would you like to learn metalwork conservation? And I said, that'd be wonderful. So I sort of spent four years going through from learning some highly practical metalwork conservation through to beginning to understand how small bronzes were made. And then at the end of four years, I became head of department. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> a very rapid transition yeah. from... <laughs> From emerging conservator yeah, yeah, to yeah. Uh, senior conservator. How, how typical would you say your learning was in conservation? Were there conservation formal there were, training there, courses around? Well, the there time? were at the time. I mean, places like West Dean were only just beginning. Um, but the VNA ran a studentship scheme. The government had realised that there weren't specialist conservators to go out into the regions, and so they thought, what a good idea, we will use the National Museums to train practical conservators. And so there were four-year conservation studentships. And at the time that I joined, it was something like 95% practical. And um, that slowly introduced more academic work, which obviously meant that it cut away from the amount of time doing practical. Because the students got paid at a basic conservation level, and so it was expensive, and so when there were lots of cutbacks at the then civil service, we had to abandon the studentships. 
But I got into conversation with Christopher Frayling, and he said, well, we're thinking of introducing conservation. So I said, okay, well, let's join together and we'll do a joint course. But because it was in the hands of the academic environment, there was more and more pressure to do (laughs) non-practical things. And the major project for each student moved from being a major object to a major research topic. So slowly but surely, the, the nature of things changed. I think the V&A course was probably unique in being a course that was run jointly with a major employer That's right, yeah. of conservators. Do you feel that that gave the course a rather different focus or emphasis? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it, the students were in a working environment mm-hmm. you know, for most of the time to try and keep up student numbers. We went into partnership with other places like the Museum of London and the Horniman Museum. So do you feel that was beneficial for the students when it came to graduating and looking for jobs? Yeah, I mean, a number of people outside the VNA assumed that the studentships were solely to create members of staff for the VNA. <laughs> and there is some truth in that, in that that is what resulted. It, uh, several people then went on to jobs because, again... In this general discussion about going from training to jobs, one of the things that people select for is whether they'll fit in in the team, despite however good you are or however bad you are, that the personality really counts. And if you've worked as an intern or as a student in a department, you have a head, I mean, you've made your bed. If you've screwed things up, then they definitely don't want to. But more the likely that they've found a workaround and you found a workaround and therefore you end up being a strong candidate for the job. The trend has been for the training programmes for conservators to become more and more academic over the years. If if we're allowed to be particular in the city, if you just take what happened to the Textile Conservation Mm Centre, everyone said, oh God, you know, it was closed down. And everyone said, what should we do? And then Glasgow University came up and said, we've got the answer here. And you've got a two-year MPhil in textile conservation. I mean, mm-hmm. MPhil suggests you've got to do research. Mm-hmm. So, so you can't possibly come in as they allow you to with no practical background in textile conservation. I come out saying, gosh, I really know how to do it. Do you feel... <laughs> Do you feel all of that stuff is necessary then for a young conservator, if you like, setting out for their first job? I, well, it's very difficult to say. Everybody says, you know, well, especially because everything is now a master's degree of some sort, that there has to be a research element. And therefore, people do a lot of research, which they will not be in a position to do when they get their first job. Mm-hmm. They are setting students up to be disillusioned in the first few years yes. of their work. <laughs> It probably is helpful if the research is very well directed. But again, the, the temptation these days is to allow students to do what they want to do or what, rather than what you think will be good for them. So the research could be on something that doesn't help understand objects at all, too much directed to art historical or anthropological context rather than about the materials. Because of the huge aspirations of um, conservation. Everything is now postgraduate degree, mm-hmm. 
and the places that teach postgraduate degrees are determined to give people all sorts of transferable skills so that they can get a job afterwards, mm -hmm. if not the job they thought they started training for. But given that it's impossible, we could still say it's highly desirable that after, say, the first year, where students are exposed to all of the things that a conservator might do, through, you know, from collections care to technical examination through to bench work, practical interventive work, they then get a chance to specialise, which is not there at the moment, as far well as I can see. So the only real solution, if you are determined to become, if you feel you have the skills and you want to develop those skills and become a person who does interventive work of some sort, hands-on work of some sort, is to push for the internships programmes to be better than they are. In the discussions following the talk I gave in Birmingham, a number of people have spoken to me, and they're all saying that a focused internship is needed and it might be better given to people who had, you know, not mid-career necessarily, but people who were familiar with a particular subject to develop a particular skill. Example given was globes, conservation. Mm -hmm. you, you're not going to develop a skill at globe conservation as a student, but you've got to do it later, and it might be well to, if you've got some other skills before that to do that as a later career internship. So for the new student who hasn't had enough time to be introduced to skills, then internships seem to be the answer. So in the paper I wrote, talked about uh, the National Trust intern Textile Conservation Internship, which is three years, which is probably about right. What skills would you say new conservators need most? Well, so in terms of being selected for a job, as I said, being nice, you know, being pleasant, being personable. <laughs> um, you know. So that's the first thing you need to do, is be aware that interpersonal skills are important. It's inevitable that confidence presentation skills are important. Not necessarily to give a lecture immediately, but being able, when some worthy comes around your department, says, oh, what are you doing? Know how to say things like, this is an interesting object, this is made by so-and-so, but the problem that we have is this, and so we're thinking of mending it in this way, rather than, oh, I shall be using a 5% solution, that mm -hmm. be whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the ability to make your work sound interesting, I think, is... Uh, therefore, I suppose you have to actually be interested in your work. Yeah. <laughs> and then, if you're going to go into a, the area of remedial restoration practical work you have to have the skills and you have to have a particular mindset a lot of people say there's no point in getting intelligent bright graduates and then sitting them down and saying so <laughs> ACW I mean rather so um, but it doesn't seem to be the case there seem to be some people who have the mentality that they are able to think clever thoughts develop skills I mean develop methods of doing things and still do quite a lot of repetitive work. That sort of um, practical competence, you've also talked and written about craft, mm. um, what you call the other C word, yes. conservation. <laughs> um, 
what do you feel is the best way to learn those sorts of skills um, and to maintain them? Well, I think if you haven't developed some hand and eye stuff during your last years at school, I mean, you, you have to have done that. I mean, the school I went to, at the age of 13, you had to make the decision, are you going to be a scientist or a humanities person? And there was absolutely no, you know, the two things just separated like that. Therefore, I wasn't allowed into the art room after 13. But at home, I just um, drew and drew and painted and painted and drew and drew and painted and painted. So, you know, I, I knew that I had the desire to use hand and eye, which is what drew me to conservation. I'm wondering if your feelings about craft have been shaped partly by the museum where you've spent your career. Yeah. So the V&A is a decorative arts yeah, museum. I, I think so. I mean, it's um, two things. One is that the museum itself is full of handmade stuff that's in reason hasn't been buried, so it's a reasonable nick. <laughs> but the the conservation department at that time was people mostly by people who were who would refer to themselves as craftsmen and they had gone in there with craft skills of some sort so that um, I was aware of people who had skill and I was aware of the fact that I mean at the time I took over the department I would say 90% of staff time was spent on practical conservation work by the time I left I would imagine I was down to about 40 but but that didn't come from you. Oh, well, I mean, I, I'm quite happy to blame myself for some things. You know, the minute yeah. you start to introduce things like um, record keeping of any sort, um, and then it was me that got involved with the exhibitions department and with loans, and therefore the minute you're then doing, you're doing condition reporting. And in order to get to achieve equality between conservators and curators I campaigned to get conservators to be sent on um, career trips um, so that there I mean there are uh, and, and I mean preventive conservation didn't exist yes. in 1977 and so slowly but surely we invented that and I mean within the VNA although I mean it was a new thing around the globe at that time uh, beginning to teach it Surveys was the, the big time waster of all time. And I've, I've recorded elsewhere that my biggest mistake was thinking that getting hold of the thermohygrographs was the way to success. Whereas, <laughs> in fact, all it did was uh, prove that conservatives are happy to take on really, really boring jobs. So, <laughs> so, so you know, insects, you know, oh, we've got insects, let's do something. Oh, no, let's not hire a man. Let us all go around with traps and monitors and whatever, and the same with the environment and the light and everything. Anything you can get a little bit of equipment and start doing spreadsheets. Possibly because of this diligence and, to some extent, ordered mind that you don't necessarily find among curators or other people, the conservators turn out to be very good uh, project managers. Mm. Or if you're looking for a project manager, you could do always do well by looking among the, the conservation staff for someone to do this. So, I mean, I mean, I lost conservators <laughs> in the department into that area. Yeah. Huh. And just going back to your own career, hmm. what 
what do you wish you had known at the start of your career that you knew by the end? What I was doing was, you know, I mean, I was at several occasions in positions of not immense power, but great potential. So head of a big department. I was chairman of UKIC for a while. But I had no idea what I wanted to achieve. And therefore, I think going back to project planning, if you don't know what the end is, you're going to waste a lot of time. Mm. So, you know, I, I suppose I didn't fight many battles if I couldn't win it through persuasion or talking or just saying, and this makes a lot of sense, you know, I didn't go into battle to win certain things. Is there any advice you would give to um, conservators just starting out on their careers? Um, going back to be nice to people, learn, you know, I mean, I had the pleasure of commuting from Cambridge so you get up early and you get home late and you have four hours a day on the train. So use that time, read a lot, you know, think a lot. Mm-hmm. Don't get an iPad, don't get a, you know, don't have any, you know, a iPod or things, whatever the new thing is that you stick um, earphones in your ear or don't join a card school or don't get chatting to people, just use that time to learn. So if you don't have the pleasure of knowing you're shut away in a train for four hours, then you've got to discipline yourself to learn. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Okay. I love Jonathan. Conservation has changed an awful lot. Yes. I think it's really, really interesting to hear this history, essentially, of the vast changes in conservation over actually not all that many years. Mm. Um just the way that we think and we do things and the fact that he's, you know, in, they've invented the past generation or the older generation, I should say, rather than past generation, older generation of conservators developed the things that we do and just take almost as law now, like the preventative conservation and IPM and all of this. It's so embedded in what we do now. that Yeah, we can't take it for granted as always, to, don't we? Yeah, it's interesting to hear about a time when you know, 90% bench work. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? I really, I really enjoyed the bit where he said, um, rightfully, our degrees are quite research-based, or they tend to be. And then when you get out into the real life, (laughs) surprise, surprise, you're not going to do any research. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yeah. I mean, I I suspect it's very different at the big institutions where you've got maybe 25 conservators or something, you know, working Mm -hmm. together. I'm sure there is time and space and scope for research in those areas like in those places of employment but i mean if you end up being like the only conservator for uh, a museum or a group of museums then you're not going to do an awful lot of research you're going to look on the database and see what it says and make some make some judgments based on what you see and your previous knowledge of the materials or you're going to go away and read read up on something a little bit but you're never going to have that level of research again that you did at university i think I think in my experience, I've I've been um, a conservation journal editor, so kind of seeing the kind of bits of research that people are sending in for publication. Mm. And quite a bit of it did come out of student projects because that was the main time when people felt they had that kind of time and leisure 
to really delve into something, but also because universities have resources that very few museums have in terms of analytical equipment mm. um, and so on. So it means you can actually do really cool stuff. And a lot of the time, the stuff the students were doing was really uh, novel and um, inventive. They were doing really kind of innovative, useful stuff. Um, and so I think we kind of, it's a bit of a dilemma. I think we kind of need to keep that kind of research for the benefit of the profession. But in terms of people's individual development as conservators, it's possibly open to debate, really, how useful that is for your career to have such kind of research-heavy conservation training. Mm. Well, it's, it's certainly something we're thinking about. I also find it really interesting what what he says about his, his C word craft. I think it's something I've talked uh, about with other conservators, especially ones that are retiring soon, for example, because uh, of the different level in practical skills. And I'm, I guess, for me, um, practical skills come very naturally because my parents are very craft based people. Whereas, like my my dad is a bit of a he's a bit of a tinkerer. Uh, so he's he's someone who's always been building something or taking something apart and checking what's inside and uh, and putting it back together and making it work again. And he's, I guess, uh, having grown up in an environment where that's natural, that means that I go go into my work with a very practical attitude, um, which which is great. Um, and I guess the thing is that that that's it hadn't really occurred to me that that's not really the 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 like the normal standard maybe that maybe people don't have that kind of background and I mean I I guess I'm I'm I've got cre- creative ADHD in that I do far too many things <laughs> you know like I make jewelry and I do papercraft and I do a bit of woodworking and I do a bit of this and a bit of that and. I just do things all the time, which I guess must help with practical skills. It is something that I always put in my my practice. So I make um, stage costumes, dance costumes um, to sell for professional dancers. And it's something I always put in job applications in the statements because I think, you know, it's one of those fun fact type things to put in. in. It's a way that I can say, look how good I am with my hands, essentially. And actually, sometimes I do think maybe I should take up tailoring instead of dance costumes <laughs> because it's it's something less likely to make people cringe. You know, I make suits rather than I make belly dance costumes. Do you want to cringe at that? <laughs> oh. oh, yeah, there's that. Yeah. Um, but I was speaking to someone um, at a uh, at a university course who, who does train uh, new conservators. And uh, they told me that now you get people who don't have any kind of knowledge of how things are made because they've, they've grown up in factory-made era where everything comes out, out of a factory in China, for example. So they, they don't necessarily recognize uh, rivets or uh, where something's being soldered together uh, like in an object. So they have to teach them all, more from the ground up in that this mm-hmm. is how something is made and th- these are the clues because they're not used to necessarily looking at things as handmade or or not mass manufactured, for example. What do you think, Christina? Is this something that you've seen in your career as well, a sort of prevalence of crafts and a prevalence of the importance of crafts in conservators? It's difficult to say, actually. I mean, I've done, I've done jobs where there's been a lot of very routine work um, where the skill really and um, the expertise has been in the 
decision making that goes into it but the work itself is not necessarily highly skilled in practical terms um so um i did a a gallery refurbishment project at a science museum where um i was literally cleaning 19th century glassware for months on end um (laughs) hundreds and hundreds of pieces and they were all they were all very fragile they were all very delicate and fiddly we had these terrifying glass spirals um and that kind of thing but essentially you're just swabbing glassware and you know once you've kind of assessed the object and decided on a general kind of um conservation plan for the whole collection you're then just kind of implementing and you're sitting at a bench swabbing glassware for six hours a day whatever um and it's really important work and it does need a conservator but it certainly wasn't making tremendous use of my practical skills but then every now and then you come up against something which kind of pushes them to the limit Hmm. Uh, just before we go uh, we'd like to share some recommended resources so places to look for jobs and places to find a bit of extra support Uh, this is where i'd like to give a shout out to both emerging museum professionals and emerging conservation professionals on uh, facebook those are facebook groups um, they are prim- primarily America-based, but they are still great places to get a bit of companionship and share struggles, ideas, anything you want. Uh, that's where we've got some of our comments from, and we're really grateful. Thanks, guys. Uh, for conservators in Australia, uh, studentconservators.com might be a good one because uh, that's a Melbourne University one. It features loads of articles written by student conservators and uh, does look like a really good resource. I didn't know they existed until quite recently. So I'm glad someone, you know, picked it up because, yeah, well done, guys. Uh, other than that, um, I'm going to mispronounce this. Fistful of Sinktons is uh, a really entertaining blog. Uh, which I will link to in the show notes. And they have an excellent entry on applying for jobs in the museum sector. Other than that, Do place... Do say website? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no, quite. So uh, looking looking for jobs at different websites, there's obviously Leicester Museum's Jobs Desk, if you're in the UK. Which is amazing. It's really amazing. Uh, there's also uh, the Icon Jobs Bulletin, if you're a member of Icon. And student membership is not too dear. Uh, and you can get a concessionary rate as well um, as a, you know, regular human being, <laughs> no longer a student. Um, what else? Museum jobs. Yeah, yeah, that's that's also national website. jobs. Yeah, national museum jobs. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we've also got. Obviously, you sometimes see listings on the conservation disc list. They can be worldwide, so that's a great place to look as well, uh, including internships, fellowships, all that stuff. Uh, which I'm sure you already know about, but it is worth mentioning. Um, And to be honest, trawl through as many job sites as you can. Sometimes unexpected gems come up at things like local authority jobs in in the UK, for example, where sometimes conservation posts are advertised. Uh, Just look everywhere. Leave no stone unturned. You will find a job. You will do well. Stay strong, guys. for listening with the c word and you've been listening to christina rosaic chloe rumsey marie jordan and me jenny mathiason 
special thanks to Jonathan Ashley-Smith. Join us next time for an episode about public image. In the meantime, you can check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by DD Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. This has been a Wooden Dice production. I still keep those in, have you noticed? What? Oh, no, the whoop whoops. No? Yeah. I haven't noticed. <laughs>